Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Thursday, March 17th. We begin with a look at the war in Ukraine, specifically the Ukrainian resistance to the Russian attacks. We discuss with Professor Frank Ledwich, Senior Lecturer in Military Capabilities and Strategy from the University of Portsmouth. Then it's our weekly report on all things Calgary with Global News City Hall reporter Adam McVicker. Adam brings us the latest on the ongoing Beltline weekend protests and the message the Mayor and City Council have sent to the Calgary Police Service surrounding the issue. If you're a parent headed back to work in the office, you might be scrambling to find childcare. We discuss the impact the new government grant program has had on the childcare industry with Danielle Borden, the executive director of Emboldened Private Day Home Community. And finally, it's a chance to learn more about some very well-known Calgary landmarks and some hidden gems you might not know much about. In part two of our series, Where We Live, our Dave McIver brings us the story of Calgary's iconic Spolumbo's Fine Foods and Deli. Uh, the threat of nuclear war has the world on edge of their seats as Russia's invasion of Ukraine enters its third week. With insight into the tactics and where this conflict could be headed, we are joined by Frank Ledwidge, Senior Lecturer in Military Capabilities and Strategy at the University of Portsmouth. Good morning to you, Frank. Good morning to you, Andy. Thank you for taking the time with us. Now, we, we spoke with you a few weeks ago and it looked uh, at the miscalculation President Putin made when invading Ukraine. What has tactically changed for Russia and uh, what is Ukraine doing correctly to resist the Russian forces? What do you see at this point? Well, what we're seeing now are intelligence reports, particularly from the British and the Americans, to the effect that the Russians have stalled in their advance. Now, there's a couple of interpretations you can put on that. The first is that they've been stopped in their tracks, which is partly true. And the, the second interpretation, which is also partly true, is that they are taking what is called an operational pause after, in military terms, culminating. Now, that, that means that they've pretty much shot the bolt in terms of their logistics and what they can do with the kit that they brought into the country. And they can do little more now. Now, of course, the Ukrainians have a say in that, as you pointed out. They have been defending themselves brilliantly. Now, they've had a lot of assistance, it's fair to say, from NATO. And that is telling, particularly in their anti-aircraft and anti-armor capabilities, which is cutting chunks out of Russian air and uh, air and armored power at the moment. And that's likely to continue. However, what I think we will see, caveat talks, is is increased ferocity of their artillery assaults on the cities. Mm. Uh, Frank, you know, there have been concerns and a lot of talk about Russia using a false flag operation as an excuse to use chemical weapons or perhaps even worse than that. Can you explain what a false flag operation is? And, and how Russia might be able to use that as a justification in their, their heads, obviously, for the use of any kind of chemical weaponry. Yeah, a false flag operation is, is something that happens that you blame on the other side and then react uh, accordingly. So it might well be that there's an explosion in a nuclear, nuclear installation and it's blamed on Ukrainian, Ukrainian uh, uh, activities and there's then some form of retaliation or in this case as you point out so a chemical attack has happened several times in Syria which is blamed on the other side and then justifies retaliation and the, the, the fear is that this would be an excuse for for escalation and possibly to 
Uh, well, I hesitate to say it, but people have been talking about nuclear escalation. I think that's extremely unlikely, but clearly it helps the Russian narrative if they can blame a chemical attack on the Ukrainians. It might even help their own internal political support. Mm. I want to talk to you about this, and this is something, you know, NATO has kind of drawn the line in the sand of what they are interested in, in doing and committing and what they are not interested in doing and committing, notably the no-fly zone. But when it comes to the reaction to Russia and Russia forces targeting humanitarian supplies and even arms provided by NATO and the allies coming into the country, when the Russians are attacking these convoys and this supply chain, could that be something enough to drag NATO into this conflict? Well, they've already done that with a, a, a very uh, effective attack on a place where I think it's called Yabovlev, which is in western Ukraine. And that, I think, did a lot more damage than we've been told about. I think there were a lot more casualties than have been admitted. And that was a, a, a key uh, a key element in the, in the arms supply chain. Now, clearly, they'll have repaired that damage and shifted the supplies elsewhere because it was a particular, in my view, anyway, rather obvious target. But I don't see them drawing NATO, and unless, there's, unless there is a deliberate attack, because people have been talking about missiles going astray, and that can happen, and that, I think we'll get a lot of stamping in the feet if that happens. But if there's a deliberate attack, say on one of the notional depots, let's say they exist, and they certainly do in Poland, then you're looking at a much more serious situation, and I, I would suspect fairly massive NATO retaliation. Frank, you know, we, we hear about these peace talks or so-called peace talks. Are they going well? We've heard President Zelensky say there's been sort of a positive turn. Is this what you do you think will will end this war? Is it the peace talks? Well, look, I, I don't know is the answer to that. Uh, I think they should be watched carefully. But I don't think either side has enough leverage on the ground yet. Certainly the Russians haven't achieved the objectives that they would consider adequate at the moment to be able to justify this atrocity. Um, the Ukrainians, of course, believe that they are, or at least effectively, even I mean, with some justification, that they are, if not winning, then, and certainly holding the Russians off. So at the moment, there's not too much of a drive, I would think, for, for negotiation to be finalized, although it is encouraging that there does seem to be moves. Uh, now, there would be political, serious political consequences, I think, within Ukraine were there to be too many concessions. And that will be a major consideration for President Zelensky uh, after all this fighting. Don't forget, he did say they were going to fight to the last bullet for every inch of Ukrainian territory. A lot of people have been doing that. You know, unfortunately, uh, we, we do hear about the casualties of this Russian invasion. And, and we hear uh, something to the extent, I believe the most recent numbers yesterday, President Zelensky said something like 97 children have been killed. And again, I'm, I'm sure these numbers change and are in a bit of a slide. Uh, but I'm, I'm wondering what you think as far as the accuracy of the numbers of casualties from both sides uh, that we're hearing. Uh, you know, can we can we trust those numbers? Because obviously we used to call the Soviet Union the Iron Curtain, um, and I'm sure Russia isn't offering up numbers of, of their casualties. What do you think about the, the information we're getting? I think that probably the best the best assessments are coming from the U.S. at the moment, um, which are saying that the Russians have now lost, killed in action, more than the UK, US, and all the other allies, including Canada, lost in the last 20 years of, of combat, just in the last three weeks. They've lost about 7,000 dead, wow. so say the Americans. Now, what that means, of course, is you can multiply that by four in terms of casualties, and uh, that you're looking now at a 20 or 30 percent uh, uh, of, of Russian combat capability, which is a huge casualty rate. However, and here's a big however, the Russians can take 
damage. Are you there, Frank? Oh, I am. Yeah. Oh, sorry, we lo- I lo- we just lost the end of it there. Yes, yeah. What did what was the last of your sentence? The Russians what? Russians can can take damage. They they uh they can take casualties. Okay, okay. Wow, that's a that's a shocking number because uh, you know that that's fascinating. Certainly, the the Russians are not allowing that information out. On that note, then, no. just quickly before we let you go, do you think that the the Americans are seeing everything that's going on in terms of using satellites and drones, etc.? Is the the view of what's happening on the ground pretty well documented right now? Yes, I think so. There's a lot that we're not being told. I think NATO is, is assisting a very great deal using the capabilities they have, for example, in the air, with a recognized air picture using NATO radar capabilities, and of course the space, uh, the space reconnaissance satellites are doing a job as well. Now I think the Americans, NATO as a whole, are very well aware of what's going on on the ground, at least from that perspective of the air and space. Frank, thanks again for your insight. We appreciate it. Uh, we hope to have the chance to catch up with you. Well, we hope to put a cap on this conflict sooner rather than later find it a, a peaceful conclusion but in the meantime we appreciate uh, the time you spent with us very great pleasure thanks a lot that is frank ledwidge senior lecturer in military capabilities and strategy from the university of portsmouth the Beltline community is fed up for two years weekly freedom demonstrations have disputed uh, the Beltline community disputed disrupted yes. I believe the word is here now the city is asking the Calgary police to take action. With details on this and other news from City Hall, we turn to Global News City Hall reporter Adam McVicker. Weekend protests in the Beltline, a top priority at City Hall this week. City Council holding a special meeting Tuesday to discuss the issue. Mayor Jody Gondek says Council's influence in the situation is limited. This is because Council does not have the authority to tell the police or the Calgary Police Commission, its independent oversight body, what to do. Ultimately, Council agreed to send a letter to the Commission that outlines concerns of Beltline residents, clarifies roles and responsibilities, and asks for updates on the situation. Gondek says she's expecting a different approach to the protests this weekend after police were forced to use force to separate a counter-protest last weekend. What we have outlined as a council is that we need to hear from commission what they are going to do with the police service to strengthen our resolve and to make sure that their community is not disrupted again this weekend. What does that look like? We're waiting to hear. But not all city councillors are in favour of the move. Ward 13 councillor Dan McLean voted against the letter saying council shouldn't get involved. I think we're inciting or inflaming the situation. The end of the day, my whole point is that politicians should stay out of this and let the police handle it. That's their job, not the politicians. The almost weekly protests in the Beltline can draw in as many as two or 3,000 people, many taking part, saying they're rallying against government mandates. The issue has escalated recently with frustrated residents counter-protesting. Calgary Police Chief Mark Newfeld is calling for calm and for people who plan to protest to stay away from the Beltline. Newfeld says the police are looking at a number of options. And I think you'll see a very different uh, approach on Saturday. Uh, this is a this is a difficult issue. We'll continue to work over on the coming weekends. The Calgary Police Commission has called for a meeting on Friday to discuss the police response to the upcoming protest with the goal of informing the community and residents in the Beltline. The commission says it's been in contact with city administration about the use of bylaw officers, but outlined concerns that ticketing might not be the best course of action that won't incite the crowd. Newfelt says the protests are changing and are different than others police have experienced. This is much different. This is a different type of protest that we We've seen it in the past. We thought they would stop and they won't. 
And now they're articulating that basically we want to do whatever we want to do. A spokesperson for the Freedom Protest told Global News in a statement that the police don't have the final say on how they exercise their charter rights. Newfelt says police in the protest cost CPS nearly $2 million last year, and the rallies forced police to redeploy officers from other areas of the city. A city committee has endorsed a potential tax deferral for hotels impacted by the pandemic. It would be the second year in a row the city allowed hotels to defer property taxes. The move still requires a final vote of council at the end of the month. Board 1 councillor Sonia Sharp says it's not a handout. We're not handing out money. We're, we're not saying this is an abatement. This is a deferral just to help them get back on their feet. Calgarians are one step closer to choosing an official bird to represent the city of Calgary. Bird Friendly Calgary has shortlisted five bird species to be voted on by the public. The black-capped chickadee, northern flicker, red-breasted nuthatch, a blue jay, and the black-billed magpie. If the motion gets the final green light from City Council, Calgarians will be given the chance to vote online for the city's official bird between April 1st and May 1st, 2022. The winner would be announced on May 14th, which is World Migratory Bird Day, and made official at the June 7th meeting of council. Ward 11 Councillor Courtney Penner says it's a fun way to recognize the city's biodiverse habitat. It's, it's a little bit nominal, it's fun, um, but what we're really trying to drive is the conversation around the importance of integrating urban wildlife into the city and talking about having a healthy ecosystem. For these stories and more, head to globalnews.ca slash Calgary. Reporting from City Hall, Adam McVicker, Global News. Okay, a lot of parents heading back to the office as uh, mandates are lifted and people return to the work site. And that's led to a very high demand for day homes and child care once again. With some insight into the significant growing pains in the child care sector, we're joined this morning by Danielle Borden, Executive Director of Emboldened Private Day Home Community. Hi, Danielle. Thanks for joining us. Hi guys, thanks for having me back. I really appreciate it. Well, this is you know it's really come to light that people are having a tough time finding daycare for their kids as they try to head back to the workplace. So, has your private day home network seen a lot of increased demand for people traditionally that had been at home for the past couple of years now heading back to the office? I think there's a lot of turbulence in the industry right now, uh, just across the board with everybody returning to the office after the pandemic. And then the announcement of the federal funds that are now available for licensed day homes, which, um, of course, unlicensed day homes do not um, qualify for. And so it's really dependent on the region that these day homes are in and these parents are in, whether or not they're having a hard time or if there's an oversaturation. So I guess it's, you know, it's due diligence on the parents' part. I mean, it's it's not that this money's just going to be handed for you. You still have to find, uh, you know, some care that is appropriate, that fits for you and your family. It's And it's not a one-size-fits-all, is it? That's right. And obviously, as a, you know, support network for unlicensed stay homes, we do value parent choice. And the reality, especially in areas in, in Calgary and surrounding areas, um, you know, there's not enough regulated spaces at the moment. Um, to meet the demand for childcare, and so parents are going to be looking to the unlicensed sector to meet that need. So, will there be enough then? If you have some of the unlicensed, um, you know, in private day homes, will there be enough for everybody who needs it? Especially with this childcare subsidy now becoming available. Yeah, the government has uh, indicated that they're going to be increasing spaces by forty-two thousand and five hundred within the next five years. Um, According to our numbers, which is difficult to nail down because there's not a lot of data out there on, um, you know, who is actually providing unlicensed childcare and the demand that they're meeting. Um, but we do 
we do su suggest or suspect that there are um, not enough spaces in the province for every child that needs one. Um, so yes, they will be increasing spaces, but um, you know, as you said before, there's going to be some growing pains, and um, a lot of these spaces that they're creating, they're hoping about 20% are going to come from um, unlicensed providers becoming licensed, and that will take time. And so, for right now, there are a lot of parents experiencing trouble trying to access childcare. Danielle, I know you know firsthand hearing about wait lists, and we're hearing that you know. Well, one of the major providers of uh, child care in the city has a 900-person wait list or something of that nature. I'm wondering, is this a Calgary-specific problem, or are we seeing the same issues in, in uh, large Alberta cities like, you know, Edmonton, Red Deer, Medicine Hat, Lethbridge, or, you know, is, is one area harder hit than the others? I think Calgary has always struggled, um, especially just with having a higher population. Um, there's always been kind of these waitlist situations where I've heard from parents that have said they've needed to put their child on the daycare waitlist before they were even pregnant. And so um, it is definitely a challenge that the Calgary region experiences, but it's also something that happens um, within the other uh, larger municipalities, like certain areas within Edmonton. Um, our child care system is very um, unique and diverse, and we have a lot of diversity between municipalities, even within a municipality and the regions within. Um, there can be areas that have oversaturation of childcare spaces, and then there can be areas that have deserts. So it just depends on where you live. Um, rural communities also uh, typically have um, harder time filling their licensed spaces. And so parents have a harder time accessing licensed care. Like in my small rural community, we don't even have a licensed day home. Uh. Well, we'll send folks to your website to get more information. Appreciate your time and your expertise on this. Thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Danielle Borden is the executive director of Embolden Private Day Home Community. And the website is emboldenpdc.com. And I know about this firsthand with, with toddlers and, uh, you know, kids just entering the school system. We still need some care. You know, it, it's not uh, completely blanket. It's not, you know, 10 or 12 hours a day, but we need some care. And it's interesting to me because I had to do... In my due diligence, it's like it's like really anything in life. You can't expect people to hand you things. Yeah, especially when it's best. important, yeah. right? Sometimes you have to track down yeah. the info yourself. And so and there's a difference between the subsidies that are offered and the provincial grants. And, you know, they can work in conjunction with one another. But you have to be clear that, you know, you are getting what is, you know, rightfully yours, according to the Alberta government and these programs. Who did you chase down? I ended up because I had some questions about this. I sent a note to... A, uh, my MLA, two notes with no response whatsoever. Mm -hmm. um, I can out my MLA if you want, but yeah, nevertheless, sure. it's a Tyler Shandro. No answer. Having said that, the first time I sent the note was the day that they announced that he was changing <laughs> and switching portfolios. Probably he had, had a different ago. focus yeah. that day. Sent a couple notes there. Then I went to Rebecca Schultz, the Minister of Children's Services for the province. I sent her uh, uh, first assistant a note. Right. Nothing back. Yeah, absolutely. And I sent the, I, I sent uh, similar people notes from different email accounts just to like try to like, I'm not trying to bug you here. And then I finally heard back from Rebecca Schultz, one of her assistants, great guy. And what he had he detailed it for me. And what had happened was in our daycare, uh, there was some kind of a, a clerical error. Okay. We have been overpaying by hundreds of dollars a month since the beginning of the year. Ooh. So will you get it back? Oh, Everything's yeah. cleared up? Yeah, they're, they're above board with it. There was an, an oversight. So you have to follow through. Yeah, the fact of the matter is find out what you're paying. Find out what you should be paying if right. you're eligible for the grant. Everybody's eligible for that. And or the subsidy may be in conjunction. And it does differ if it's part-time or full-time. So, yeah, roll up your sleeves 
and you could save some money. We are super pleased. It's kind of fun to be able to do things like this, but it's called the Where We Live series that we're running on 770 CHQR. It's a series showcasing the incredible, unique aspects and the dynamics of Calgary and the different neighborhoods and different things that we have in our neighborhoods. Over the next few weeks, we're going to celebrate diverse communities, how they shape the different regions and neighborhoods in the city, and it runs every Tuesday and Thursday. It's called Where We Live. And this morning on the program, our Dave McIver shares the story of a Calgary iconic joint. Yes, Spolumbo's. The iconic Calgary restaurant and deli sits on the corner of 9th Avenue and 12th Street in the heart of Inglewood. Tom Spolatini, Mike Palumbo, and Tony Spolatini grew up as friends, and after their careers ended with the Calgary Stampeders, they decided to get into the one thing they knew best other than sports, food. But as Tony Spolatini explains, it didn't start out as a restaurant. We would uh, do the Millerville Market. You know, we'd go out to Millerville in the early years. And actually where we originally, originally started was in the basement of the Villa Firenza uh, restaurant. They were Tom's uh, in-laws and stuff. So that when they weren't working the restaurant, we'd go and do it with a 35-pound hand crank uh, machine in the basement and then try flogging it like we'd drive to... We'd all, like, take off in our vehicles in this Tupperware, get there fast, you know, before that stuff warmed up too fast and ask them to, uh, if we could cook some samples. And I think uh, having played the football opened uh, some doors initially because normally I, I think they would have slammed the doors on us, but being uh, former Stampeders, that helped us uh, get the foot in the door a lot of times. So uh, we started a little deli uh, down the street from where we are now, and... Um, and then uh, it was Ninth Avenue Deli. We bought it, made it Spolombos, uh, made some sausage out of the back, and did some sandwiches out of the front to help supplement some income. And then uh, the location where we are now, which is uh, about uh, two blocks east, uh, was an old gas station in Inglewood and uh, at the zoo turnoff. And uh, we ended up to buy that land, build a federal sausage plant, little bigger deli, and we've been in this location since 1998. Growing up playing sports, the friends benefited from the generosity of Calgarians and Calgary businesses. It's a huge influence on why they continue to give back to the community today. Well, we're, we're born and raised here. You know, we're, we're, we're children of immigrants uh, that came from Italy, you know, just after World War II in the 50s and that. And you know, growing up, um, we played sports. And I just remember growing up, there was so much uh, sponsorship and support for the soccer teams and hockey teams and, you know, football teams that we played on. You saw a lot of parents and, and corporations giving to youth sports, and we benefited from that. And we just always felt that, you know, we're in a position where if we can give back, we'd like to so that we could hopefully pass it on. To, uh, to the youth of today, just like we benefited from all the generosity of, uh, of people and, and, and corporations in the past. So that's always been uh, a big mandate for us. So what is it about serving the people of Calgary that Tony Spolatini loves the most? You know what, I, we grew up where, and it's that, you know, the Italian kind of European thing where the house was always open. And a lot of times, uh, you know, you may not have had a lot of money, but you could always give love and support and food. And that's always been the way the three of us were raised and so to see my mom or, or my aunt or, or 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 mike's mom you know always so giving our, our, our you know and, and and inviting growing up around that it just feels great to be able to do that on a larger scale for for our city and i have to tell you if, if you want to be an entrepreneur there isn't a better city than calgary because calgary really embraces uh, risk takers really embraces entrepreneurism, so it's uh, it's just a joy to be able to serve people here. 
I'm Dave McIver with 770 CHQR. Where We Live is brought to you by Furnace Family. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcast, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. And tune in to Mornings with Sue and Andy from 530 to 9 every weekday morning on 770 CHQR.